Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Jackie Handy, who is the MD of Runway Global. Jackie is on a mission to ensure people feel safe, valued, and understood at work. Jackie, welcome. Thanks, Marcus. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background and history so they understand where you've come from? Sure. Let's start the stop clock. My early career was as a recruiter. So I, I spent 15 years in the recruitment sector as a recruiter and latterly a manager. In, oh gosh, 12 years ago now, I moved into learning and development with a passion for leadership development and subsequently started Runway Global nearly eight years ago now. And I moved into the diversity, equity and inclusion space, really morphed into that space, to be honest, because I started sharing my personal journey through being a member of the Professional Speaking Association and developing my offering, not just into, you know, organizations, corporate organizations where I support them with leadership development, but also then sharing my personal journey of diversity, equity and inclusion on the sort of keynote stage. And from there, and from subsequently delivering a TEDx talk in 2018 called The Exclusive Nature of Inclusion, I basically got found and was asked about supporting organisations in the diversity, equity and inclusion space. So now what I'm able to do is really combine my wealth of experience, really, within the recruitment, leadership and now diversity, equity and inclusion space to support organisations, create space for their people, their employees, both current and future employees, uh, so that they do, in fact, feel safe, valued and understood at work. Very interesting. Okay, well, let, let's start with some definitions of diversity, equity, and inclusion, because I, th- I think that whole area is often misunderstood. Right. Uh, you see job ads, we're an equal opportunities employer, uh, yada, yada, yada. But the reality is people hire because they virtue signaling to a large extent um, about ticking a box, but then they fire for being different. And mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to un- understand how you define the three and what they really are versus uh, what the common perceptions of them are. I think you make a really good point, actually, Marcus, and it's something that I'll elaborate on shortly. But but certainly, diversity is simply difference. Diversity is a fact. We are beings within a diverse society. So there's no getting away from it. Like it, don't like it, there's diversity all around us. So an individual cannot be diverse. We can be intersectional. So in other words, we have uh, varying different overlapping parts of our identity that make us who we are. But, But an individual isn't diverse. It's a group of people that are diverse. So our society is full of diversity. That is just a fact. The term equity, so sometimes you hear the term used equality. So some people say diversity, equality and inclusion. And I prefer the term equity. And there's a subtle difference between the two terms. So equality basically means we all want the same thing, right? We want equal. We want to be treated equally. Whereas equity, and I know there's a financial equity, but when we're talking about equity in terms of this context, and equity really means that I have what I need to reach the same heights. Now, does that make, I hope that makes sense because- Yeah, great point. Right, so if I'm, let's just say, for example, I'm a wheelchair user, then I don't need necessarily the same things as somebody who's not a wheelchair user, but I do want the same opportunities to reach the same heights. So I may need something subtly different that meets my uniqueness in order to be able to reach the same heights. Okay, so that's kind of what I mean by equity, and it's the subtle difference between that and equality. And then inclusion. Well, inclusion is really, that is the piece where people feel like they are valued, that they are safe, and that they are understood. Some organizations use the term belonging, and there may be people thinking, oh, that all sounds rather fluffy. But actually, when you think about it, We all have an innate need as human beings to belong. And what happens is we confuse the terms fitting in with belonging. So when organizations look for people, they're asking themselves, 
who's going to fit in with my organization? And what that actually does, if you think about it, is it puts all the onus on the other person because they they have to find a way to fit in, right? Whereas actually, if they're asking themselves the question, how can we create true inclusion? In other words, that feeling that people have, that they belong, then it puts more of the onus on themselves to be proactive in creating an environment where people feel it. Right. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, But again, this is really interesting in terms of the cultural mindset. And in particular, it seems to start with the beliefs and values of leadership. So I can see why you'd end up in the leadership space. So for an organization to be truly diverse, equitable and inclusive, what are the building blocks at a leadership level that must exist for that to even be possible? Right. So I really believe that, you know, qualities such as empathy, compassion, understanding are paramount to today's leader. And they all sound very soft and some of them may sound a little intangible, but I really think that that's important because Unless we have the opportunity to understand difference difference in its many forms, then how can we really start putting something into place that creates an environment that suits everybody, that people feel like they belong? And they it's more than that, isn't it? Because when you feel like you belong, you thrive. You know, you become more productive and creative and innovative and so forth. So there's there's all of those consequences to being in an environment where you feel like you belong, not despite who you are, but because of it. So I think leaders have to start thinking outside of their own box because you can't see it right now and your your listeners won't be able to see it. But I have a, a, a map of the world behind me on my wall in my office. And, you know, that's not just a twee. That is metaphorical for the fact that we all have our own unique map of the world. And that map of the world is made up from our culture, our heritage, our life experiences, and our identity. And it is absolutely unique to us. And it determines the way in which we engage, work, behave, etc. And the way that we build relationships, you know, any there are people in business listening to this, and they will know that if you're looking to sell your products or innovate a new idea then you almost have to get under the skin of another person or persons in order to be able to influence them. And this is no different, but perhaps rather than influence per se, you're looking proactively to create those safe and environments based on understanding. So it is moving out of your own map to start to try and understand the map of someone else, whoever that person is. And You know, we know that there are in the UK, for instance, and in other countries, some have these, some have different characteristics, and some have no legalized protected characteristics. But in the UK, we have nine protected characteristics. And so this tells us that we must treat people that fall into one or more of these boxes, quote unquote, you know, we must treat them fairly and not put them at a a disadvantage because of that characteristic. So what what are those nine, just out of curiosity? Oh, gosh, right. Okay, so uh, they are, uh, let me try and remember all of these, age, disability. I'm writing them down just so I don't forget them myself. Uh, So we've got age, disability. We've got marital status. We've got sexual orientation. We have religion or belief. We have gender. We have gender reassignment. Hang on a second. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's two more, isn't there? Oh, yes. Pregnancy or maternity. And there's a really obvious one that I've... Uh, oh, yes, of course. And we have race and ethnicity. And colour comes onto that as well. So those are the nine protected characteristics in the UK and Ireland. So, you know, you may have differences across the world, of course. And in some countries, there are no legalised protected characteristics. But certainly the point really I was coming to from that is it's almost, it's acknowledging the box because the box, and I say the box being the protected characteristic, because the box can matter 
to that individual who falls into it. It, of course, influences them in the workplace, in their behavior, in their language, et cetera, and their belief systems. But it's also looking beyond the box. Remembering again, talking of intersectionality, I've referred to it already. And this is where really the component parts of our identity cross over. So for example, I'm I'm a female, I'm white, I am a lesbian, I am gosh, a kickboxer. (laughs) I live in uh, the middle of England, you know, all of these different component parts. I'm an only child and so on and so forth. So all of these component parts intersect and it's the intersectional nature of identity that truly influences the way in which we see the world and the way in which we experience the world. And there are some people that because of some of the component parts of identity, their experience is much more advantageous or less advantageous in the world around them because the more they become, dare I say, marginalized or underrepresented through those intersectional points, the greater the risk perhaps of feeling discriminated against or indeed discriminating against another person. So it's about looking at, yes, the the importance of those characteristics for that individual. But then it's looking beyond the legalities and it's looking at the person as a holistic individual, the way in which people may be neurodiverse and the way in which they process, think and communicate differently. And I think it's fair to say you don't have to fall in a protected characteristic box to be different to the person next to you. And you don't have to be focusing on diversity, equity and inclusion in order to be curious and interested and wanting to understand what makes the other person tick, for want of a better term. So I think we ought to, it is important that we concentrate on diversity, equity and inclusion because it is representative of our society, like it or not, but respect it because it will harm your business if you don't. But I don't think actually it's much different to the way that we would typically seek as business people or business owners to develop our our products, uh, our uh, sales focus, uh, any other part of business really, to make it successful. We have to understand people and what makes that person tick, what makes them different, speak the same language, quote unquote, as well, in order to, I guess, influence, uh, value them and understand them. This is really fascinating. One of the most potent lessons that I've learned over the last probably two to five years Mm -hmm. is that the more diverse and inclusive a team, the Mm -hmm. more creative the solutions we come up with. I've been blessed, having done the podcast for the last two years, to speak to 350 people at the top of their game in a huge range of disciplines, backgrounds, everything from medical marijuana to diversity, trans issues, psychology, neuroscience, and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, the net result of that is together we've been able to synthesize some amazing concepts. And to ask much, much better questions, which are delivering much more useful answers. And I think what I'm taking from what you're saying is that organizations and leadership teams that fail to do this only get a tiny fraction of the picture. Um, So their nose is up against the map and they don't see the whole globe what they see is just what's right under their nose. And unless they learn to step back, they don't get perspective. Unless they include people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, different disciplines, chances are they will exist in a bubble And the solutions that they put forward will be the byproduct of an echo chamber as opposed to being able to see the whole picture. Exactly right. To to me, that smacks of a monumental, catastrophic waste. And when uh, you listen to people talking about, you know, we have to deliver shareholder value, 
I see in my world, most sales organizations are obsessed with being transactional and hitting this quarter's quota. And as a result, they don't spend their time nurturing the future pipeline. They don't spend time looking around for strategic alliance partners. And so they do everything through brute force and effort. And the net result of that is they waste 90 to 98% of all of their effort and their budget on unproductive activities. Right. And that is a byproduct of a lack of imagination. Mark, Mark Twain said it better than me. Your eyes won't see when your imagination is out of focus. Right. And I think what you're describing here is imagination out of focus by only being able to see sameness, looking for familiarity, looking for what feels mm-hmm. comfortable, rather than inviting in diversity and having our perceptions challenged. So back to the question about leaders, what are the questions that leaders should be asking, but they're not? Absolutely. So just if I may, just before I answer that question, Marcus, I just want to just touch on something you said right at the beginning yes. there. And, and that was um, and that was about those people that embrace diversity and inclusion, uh, have enhanced creativity, innovation and so forth. And, you know, let's be clear, the bottom line will be positively impacted. But notice that it needs the diversity and inclusion. So it needs the practices that proactively, again, it's, it's, it's take the time, I would say to people, please take the time to focus on the E and the I of DEI even more than the D, right? Because if you've got diversity in your business, but there's no equity or inclusion, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. Those people won't stick around. And you'll you'll actually have counterproductivity. But what because people that think differently, of course, will engage differently. So you'll you do actually sometimes get more greater conflict in diverse teams. But when you have equity and inclusion in those same teams, that conflict is seen as productive discussion and debate, which usually ends very favorably rather than disruptive conflict that gets us nowhere. So if there are people listening that says, well, yeah, we've had diversity in the team and it was a right bloody mess, right? Because people were fighting all the time. We could never agree anything. Then I would say, right, hold that mirror up and really truly ask yourself, what did you do or what was, or rather what was missing in that environment that that, those conflicts, those kind of head clashing, those differences of opinions did not reach a successful outcome. So that I just wanted to touch on that really. I I, I want to build on that. um, (laughs) People misunderstand what win-win is. Win-win means neither side compromises, yet both sides walk away happy and satisfied eventually. And it depends on constructive conflict. It's the friction that matters. And what I've found over the 350 uh, podcasts that I've done is that we don't always agree. In fact, often we vehemently disagree, but through the synthesis, uh, Mm -hmm. we end up coming up with a much, much better solution. And it requires patience. It requires compassion. It requires self-compassion as well. And it requires the willingness to be vulnerable and admit that you don't know it all, that you need help. It requires you to invite help from outside and to take advice and direction. And the best leaders that I know are extremely vulnerable. Mm. They admit when they don't know, when they've got it wrong, when they need help. They're compassionate. They have a high degree of self-compassion, but they're also compassionate to others. And they uh, have a low self-orientation. They're focused on service and serving others, serving the customers, serving their people. And the byproduct of all of that is good profits, highly engaged employees, loyal customers, profitable customers, customers for life. Uh, They become a destination employer. And I'm getting a little thrill up my spine as I describe that. Actually, that's quite cool because um, it's so rare. But when yeah, it you is. find it, it is. when you create it, it is a it's a marvelous place to work. People cannot wait for Monday to come around, and Friday evening comes around too fast. And you know, when, when you consider that people are spending eight to sixteen hours a day at work 
on a regular basis, why the hell would you not want that kind of environment? The whole concept that we're not running a, a holiday camp that idiot leaders and idiot investors have when they talk about creating uh, an environment where employees are fully engaged. Employees who are highly engaged produce 430% higher profit per employee than people who are mildly engaged or disengaged. Only 13% of employees in the US, according to Gallup, are highly engaged in their work. Now, that's 87% are not. Mm. That strikes me as an act of absolute idiocy. Right. It's flabbergasting. It is. It is. And, um, you know, I think I I love that you use the term vulnerability because I I think it's it's fair to say that, you know, the autocratic dictatorial leadership styles of the 1970s and 80s, they are they're really dying off. Right now, that doesn't mean are they? Well, no. Well, I mean, they should be dying off. Let me be frank. Right? I'm, I'm with you on that, but I'm not yeah. seeing a huge amount of evidence. Yeah, I think I think there's still that stigma, isn't there? The stigma when you use the term vulnerability, that there's a stigma of weakness. And you know, I I literally just think, you know, why why are we not recognising? You've only got to listen to you know orators like. Uh, Brene Brown, who talks about the fact that vulnerability and courage are they go hand in hand. Now, the root cause of the word vulnerable is vulnerabilis in Latin, and it means to make yourself woundable and do it anyway. You put yourself in harm's way. That's an act of courage. Right. Right. And the thing is, what, what also people miss is the fact that when you do it, it will be reciprocated by those around you. And then you start to develop these these kind of environments of psychological safety, which are also of paramount importance for creating environments that are founded on inclusion and belonging that will link, as you've just um, referenced there, to higher levels of engagement and retention and, of course, productivity through that and profitability. So in that case, let's come back to the questions that (laughs) should be asking, but they're not. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, certainly one of the questions, and I'll I'll expand on this in a minute, but what does it mean to have privilege? What's privilege and have I really got it? So that would be a a sort of two-in-one question there. What can I actually do? So, um, and and what what am I working towards, really? That might be all part of that. Another question around, well, actually, where can I find good, diverse talent? Because especially right now, this time of recording, there is a, um, a candidate shortage. I know this, of course, for my recruitment connections, but there is a candidate shortage out there. There are lots of jobs coming back up again, but there is a candidate shortage. And people are saying, we just can't find good talent, let alone diverse talent. And then, of course, yeah, how do I keep people when I find them? You know, these are the sorts of things that I think people are saying, where can I find talent, but they're not explicitly looking at the opportunity they now have, especially with the new ways of working that we find ourselves in. Many people were moving to sort of more remote or even hybrid working solutions. Where can I find good diverse talent? That's the sort of thing they should be asking. Well, I I think there's a really interesting issue here as well, that recruitment is more often than not something you react to when a vacancy arises or someone leaves or suddenly have budget to hire. And what I see far, far, far too few managers and leaders doing is building a bench. If you build a bench of top talent, knowing that you have not got a vacancy for them today, then what you end up with is a bench of ideal candidates, A players, who all can do the job, and you recruit from the best in the market rather than finding the compromised candidate who's available and willing to take your job at the time of hiring. Yeah, And uh, one of my rules is you never, ever, ever compromise on recruitment. If mm-hmm. you compromise on recruitment, you create a management headache for yourself downstream. If you hire excellently and then you pre-onboard, onboard and develop those people and give them the conditions so that they can do their best work every day, you provide them with the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. You engage with them on a regular basis and understand what they want from life as a result of doing their job, what their personal motivations are, and you facilitate enabling them 
to achieve what they want in life, then what you end up with are people who love coming to work, do their best work every day, um, give massive discretionary effort, and you end up with double the production instead of 50% of the production. That's a 400% uplift in productivity, which is where the 430% increase in profitability comes from. And let's take it... Let's take it further back, actually, Marcus, because, you know, I do not in any way, shape or form disagree with anything you've just said. I think all very valid points. I go back even further than that. I say, you know, in terms of if you hire excellently was your sort of pretty much your start point. But I say, what does that actually mean? Because, you know, so often I still believe this, that so often we just we kind of roll out the same old kind of job adverts in the same places with Copy the same kind of, this is what we need, this is what you must have, this is what we can offer. And I think that is flawed, frankly. Because, yeah, I think that there, there are so many recruiters, and I'm not certainly not having a dig at recruitment consultants or, or anyone who is within a business who is recruiting in talent acquisition. But I, I just think there's a... Kind of, we've done, always done it this way. So, and it's, uh, you know, and half the time we don't even realize that it's broken. The system is broken because, hey, you know, we're a pretty successful company. We're doing all right. We've got some good people. But, but actually, it, that stops us, that blinkers us again to think, okay, how can we make this even better? It's that good to great transition. And how can we support, sorry, use our processes to actually, um, move the dial on diversity, equity and inclusion within our business and make it part of the process rather than a sudden separate, oh, oh, God, we've now got to deal with diversity, equity, inclusion. Oh, 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 you know, panic, panic. So instead, I would really urge anyone that's seeking, looking to recruit talent or indeed create a talent pipeline for their organisation to really think about I mean, seriously think about what do you need? What are the qualities that um, you need in your organization to perform any specific role? And I'm not suggesting that qualifications and skills don't matter. Of course I'm not. But what I am saying is, you know, who really makes a great employee? And I mean, let's just sort of strip back, you know, all the sort of traditional stuff, um, you know, we hear over and over again, we want someone who can well in a team, but also work well on their own. I mean, come on, you know, but what what do we actually need as qualities in a role? And that, I urge that's, people... That, that's the I should bloody hope so line. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. like going to a restaurant and they say, we don't give you food poisoning. Well, I should bloody hope so. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a minimum baseline that you should expect. But it's amazing still. I really don't think that there are, um, again, it's not a big knock at a whole sort of uh, section of society here or your listeners, but I, I really think that if we, held, again, held up that mirror to ourselves and said, you know, how much thought do I really give to what qualities are required in this organisation? What, what, about, what about our values, for instance, our organisational values? Absolutely. How, how do we want people... To, to, to really be, because those organisational values, we go right, 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 right back, don't we? They should be indicative of the way in which every single person within that organisation acts as an ambassador for an organisa that organisation through their behaviour, through their language, through the way they make decisions, et cetera, et cetera, and the way in which they serve their external stakeholders and customer network. Hallelujah. But actually, still... You know, half the people in, especially in perhaps middle management level and and below that, they don't even know what the values are half the time. So how on earth then are they embedded? So how then can you bring in people who are likely to be? And I've said this already. Do you want to fit in or do you want to belong? But how can you bring in people that align from a in terms of the qualities that they bring and the way they can uh, their demonstrable qualities? that actually align with the values if you don't know how your val what your values are, first of all, and secondly, how you would hope people bring them to life in their day-to-day -day activities in their role. So I think that's a that's a big first point. Well, and and, and sorry, sorry Marcus, so just, just say as well, if I may, is that, you know, also are you indeed as the recruiter in your own echo chamber anyway, putting your own perspective on the way in which you create and advertise and circulate that job 
role because you know if you're only looking if I was writing a job advert I'd have my hat on right my metaphorical hat on if you were writing one you'd have your metaphorical hat on if we got together however we can challenge one another to check in for the language you know I might say to you Marcus that's a little bit some sort of male orientated language here you might say Jackie I think you've sort of missed this and you know this would be really important to bring in you know, so we see things with different eyes. So the more eyes we can have on something, the, the more chance we have of then recruiting and attracting represent different representation into our organisations. Right, right from the This is where I do uh, disagree with you slightly. I believe that recruiters are not challenging their customers enough. And I believe fundamentally that the recruitment industry is massively at fault because what they're doing is they're, te- they're taking orders. They are not serving their customers well, well by and large. What they don't do is they don't challenge the, uh, the client and the hiring manager to say, okay, what are the predictors of success in this role? Uh, you've touched on values which largely in most organizations is something that they've spent a three-day off-site, they've plastered them over their walls and they don't live. Beliefs are important. Beliefs about the customer, beliefs about their co-workers, beliefs about their mission and their purpose. And mission and purpose is not something you pay lip service to, it's something you live every day. The ability to adapt is another great predictor. Darwin was never talking about survival of the brawniest or else we'd still all be T-Rexes. You know, it was the ones that can uh, adapt best to the current environment. And the most important predictor is habit. What people do repeatedly every day without having to put a boot on their neck. And when recruiters take a brief, they take the cut and paste job description that was the one that they used to hire the previous incumbent who failed in role, and then they run with that. And I think that's a major, major gap in how recruiters work with their clients. They need to challenge. Recruiters are not consultants, by and large. There are a handful who are, but I've worked with recruiters who have added 300 million to the top line of a business by recruiting somebody into a position where there was no vacancy and they identified that there was a gap and they created a vacancy specifically to fill that gap and they added 300 million to the value of that business. Now, that is good recruitment. Leaders need to really take a step back. And recruitment is the number one responsibility of every hiring manager. It's not an inconvenience to them doing their day job. It's something that should be done every day. And I'm vehement about this. I know Um, you are. (laughs) I hear that. (laughs) Recruitment is too important to leave as an inconvenient afterthought. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, to be clear, I was referring actually to um, recruiters who are perhaps the talent acquisition people within an organization looking at creating, you know, a job advert or role specification for their own company. I absolutely echo, I mean, yeah. As a rec- I was a recruiter for 15 years. So, you know, I echo the sentiments that there does need to be more challenge. And, and I think, you know, the um, you're right. Recruitment is extremely important and should not be done half-heartedly. Absolutely not. I think, you know, we also have to bear in mind, of course, that recruitment is the first step in somebody's life span within an organization. So Again, if you put all your efforts into the recruitment piece, but then actually you you don't do anything with them when they join and all the rest of it, you know, the, the same problems occur. I would agree in the whole recruitment consultants now. So if we're looking at, you know, agencies and so forth. They are, I mean, and I work with many, um, you know, they are, of course, under tremendous pressures. They, they have their targets to hit and so on and so forth. That doesn't excuse it. It perhaps explains a little why they are, some of them feel a bit loath to challenge back because they don't want to miss the opportunity, et cetera. So in my work, what I'm looking to do is to support both sides of that coin, if you like. So when I work with people in recruitment, I say to them, because the, the role title, as you sort of alluded to a little bit there, the role title is generally recruitment consultant. And yet there's very little consulting that goes on. And some of that is because the recruitment consultant doesn't know 
how to consult, if that makes sense, Um, especially around a topic of diversity, equity and inclusion. Good grief. You know, it's hard enough anyway for some of them. And also the um, the hiring manager, if you like, also doesn't understand enough about diversity, equity and inclusion, because what they will look at is, you know, the type of person that's worked well previously or, you know, again, through their own blinkered view. And they will demand that. And that's it or else. What they normally do, in my experience, certainly in sales, is they hire in their own image only weaker. Of course they do. Of course they do. And yeah. that, that is catastrophic. It is. And because you, and that's a spiral to the bottom. And I, I see this uh, with fast growth companies as well, where they tend to rec- um, they, they use brute force by saying, we've got to double our revenues, so we're going to double our headcount, double our marketing spend, double our dial time. And as a result of that, they start making compromises very early in the uh, growth cycle. And the more compromises they make, the more bottlenecks they generate, because now there is a lot of upward delegation. There is learned helplessness. And mm. the top players, the top performers, get really frustrated because they seem to be carrying everybody. That's and right. Then they leave. And when you lose a top performer, your 50% probability of getting another top performer leave within six months. Mm. And that is when the real rot, well, the rot's already set in, but that's when the rot really comes home uh, to roost. And it concerns me because I see mm. so many companies that are built on those uh, shaky foundations. And the net result is that you end up with a business that has poor fundamentals, an organization with low discretionary effort, um, you end up with stovepipes and silos so that you end up spending most of your time fighting internally. Um, mm. And that baffles me. Why, why would you make your life so much harder? And this is also a byproduct of that command and control uh, leadership um, who started out in the 70s and 80s and are now at the top of the, uh, the greasy pole. And they have no vested interest in change because they don't give a damn. Once they've retired, then it's someone else's problem. And here's the thing, Marcus, you know, I, I think it's that old adage, we don't know what we don't know, right? And you you said that, you know, we're, uh, we hire in our own image and so forth. And I think, you know, you are, you make a valid point. I think there'll be people listening who say, no, we don't, I don't care whether you're black, white, purple, transgender, gay, whatever. All I care about is hiring the best person for the job. And if you're listening to that nodding, okay. I now ask you then, and this is to the listener. How do you define best, right? Who defines best? And this goes back to the earlier point um, of, you know, what, what are the real true qualities and who's determined those qualities and, and requirements for a role? So because the, the problem is, is we think we are hiring the best person for the job, but it is a homogenous group of people, most often, who are determining what best looks like. And I don't mean physically looks like, but I mean in terms of the responses that we hear, the experience that they have. And unfortunately, best is often determined as something very similar to ourselves or, you know, people like us or, uh, you know, so forth in in the organisation. So I think the one thing I would say is we talk about meritocracies and, you know, we, we only want the best and that's fair and whatever. But actually, are you defining best? best in your own image, right? And think that actually what you're doing is the right thing, rather than saying, okay, what do we really need? And who outside of our typical silos may still be able to give us those qualities? Going back to recruitment, really. I was in in recruitment for a long time. I never went to university. I don't have a degree. And yet I see some roles that are advertised um, whether they are recruitment roles or any roles, and they absolutely demand they want you to have a degree. Well, there's a, there's a few things there. I would say, well, is there a, a specific reason? You know, okay, you can't you can't go and perform brain surgery if you don't have those particular qualifications, of course. But are there times where we're just almost sort of is it sort of snob value that we're saying we want people to have a degree? And who does that? Who does that basically exclude from the process even before they start? 
I am like many people like me that do not have degrees have I, I chose not to go to university uh, not because I wouldn't have the opportunities although some people don't because of their you know their, their circumstances but because I wanted to go out and work you know my mindset was such that I wanted to go out and work earn money make a living etc and so we almost need to look beyond some of the snob value that might be present in some organizations and say do we really need that degree you know and if so why why is that important what because everyone else has got a degree because I as the recruiter have got a degree or actually are we just sort of putting some sort of snob value on that then would exclude people perhaps from uh, low socioeconomic environments perhaps or simply people like me who chose a different path well, this then speaks to attachment uh, to how we've always done it. And mm-hmm. I think one of the greatest qualities of leaders is self-reflection and asking themselves difficult, simple questions. Why do we do this? Why do we do this in this way? Why did we start doing it? Is it still relevant? And one of the really interesting bits of research, I think it was Gallup came up with the research that came out recently that they identified that experience in a sales role adds only one positive benefit, which is a slightly faster ramp-up period. It does not um, indicate in any way, shape, or form whether a new hire will perform better because they've got 5, 10, 20 years' experience in a sector uh, or selling a particular type of product. And education. Uh, Interestingly enough, Ernst & Young, uh, EY, dropped the need for a degree a couple of years ago. And that, I think, is a really forward-thinking approach because, so, you know, uh, who was it? It was Ross Perot said, I've got 2,000 MBAs uh, on my payroll. I don't have one myself. He doesn't need to. He's just got to hire people with that, the right uh, makeup to be successful. And it's down to managers to get the best out of people. What I find really interesting is the cabal that is uh, the training industry. Billions of dollars are spent every year on training, but the needle generally doesn't move one iota because of training. Because we know that 70% of learning happens in the field after training on the job. And this is where managers need to be spending their time, not faffing about in supervisory roles or producing reports and other shit like that. What they need to be doing is getting down and dirty with their people, helping them, developing them, training them, coaching them. But most managers spend next to no time on this. Jonathan Farrington did a study Mm -hmm. tail end of 2020 for SRC, and his finding was that 94% of sales managers are not fit for purpose. 94%. They are the most pivotal people in any sales organization, yet they only get 3% of the training budget allocated to them. Why is it that managers do not get the support that they need? Well, largely because the managers managers of managers never got it either um, since you know, over the last exactly. 20 years or so. Yeah. We're in the third generation of sales managers that don't know how to prospect and don't know how to coach. And yeah. that is a travesty. Coaching after the recruitment is the most important function a manager has. And you coach what you see. So you need to do ride-alongs. You need to spend time with your people on the job and see how they're performing and then let them fail and then coach them so that they work out the solution for themselves 80% of the time, make them feel protected, make them uh, uh, feel safe, give them permission to speak without fear of punishment and make them feel like they have an equal voice. But again, those three Ps of parity, protection and permission are almost never present in most management employee relationships because it's mm. you'll do what you're damn well told and that command and control. Because and, they were they were hired in the likeness of the previous person who didn't get it and the previous <laughs> person who didn't get it. So it, it all comes back around, doesn't it? Jackie, we're coming to the tail end and I, I want we to are. pick up on one thing. You mentioned privilege and I'd like you to um, yes. expand on that. Uh, what is privilege? And uh, how can one leverage privilege positively? Sure. Okay. And thank you for the question because it's often misunderstood term. And I think in the um, in the wake of the George Floyd killing and the resurgence of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, we heard this term a lot used um, white privilege explicitly. And often when 
people hear the term privilege, they assume it actually to be an indicator of wealth. Now, that is potentially one element of privilege. But privilege in the terms that we're talking about it is it actually means that you have an advantage in life that you did not ask for and you cannot control. Now, I'm going to say that again because it's really important. So it's an advantage that you have in life that you did not ask for and you cannot control. So the term privilege could be applied to your your colour, your gender, your sexual orientation, your able-bodiedness, um, your neurotypical uh, approach in terms of how your, your, your brain works and so forth, any number of things. You, Marcus, you didn't ask to be a white man, right? I didn't ask to be a white woman. So, but the privilege that you are afforded that by being a white man gives you an advantage in life that you can't control and you didn't ask for. You just have it because it is considered the historically the dominant voice and so on. So people firstly need to truly understand this term and that having privilege does not make you a bad person. That's really important. And privilege can come in terms of socioeconomic status as well, by the way. So just to uh, touch on that wealth piece, but it's not the only way. And so often, you know, lots of people say, oh, I don't have privilege because, you know, I I was brought up in hardship and I had to fight for everything I've got. And it's like, okay, so missing the point uh, or the wider picture. But once you understand that having privilege doesn't make you a bad person, as I say to people, it's like many things in life. It's what you do with it that counts. And so if you are a white man, especially a heterosexual, able-bodied white man, then you, your voice, whether you like it or not, whether you realize it or not, is most likely to be a voice that is listened to, other than perhaps, unfortunately, and through no fault of uh, anybody individually, but just a societal norm, if you like, somebody that perhaps is um, is black, a woman uh, who lives with a disability, perhaps, is less likely to have their voice heard. And so uh, as someone that is afforded certain privileges, it, it is looking for ways that you can create space. This links a little to that equitable piece I mentioned at the start and also the inclusion piece. But how can I, with the privilege I am afforded, create space for those who are not afforded those same privileges in my boardroom, in decision-making, in my sales team, in my recruitment process. We could go on and on and on and on and on. Who are the voices that are not at the table that I, with my privilege, can give them a seat, if you like, and more than that, a voice at that table? This is really what we mean by privilege. And then what it enables us to do is to to actually look and say, well, who have I got in my organization that I can invite to the table? You know, I think so often, and I know we're coming to the end, but just as a, as a brief, really, I would say, you know, you, you can't be a bit inclusive, right? It just doesn't work like that. So very often when we when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, especially the, the D from this perspective, there's been quite rightly a big focus on race and, uh, uh, and, and ethnicity. There has been a big focus on gender and getting more women in our boardrooms and so forth and in uh, in, in uh, senior positions in organisations. And that is quite right, because the more diversity we have, certainly at senior level, the more people coming into our organisation that, that come from those backgrounds can also aspire to those. But I would also say, very often I, I'll say to organisations, so, so how many people do you have in your organisation who live with a disability? There are 1 billion people globally who live with disabilities, 80% of whom were not disabled from birth. And many of them have so-called, I don't like the term invisible disabilities, but they because of course they exist, but they are unseen disabilities. They're so, not. you know, so, so how many people do you have of that nature within your organisation? What about um, how many people do you have that, that might be uh, lesbian or gay or bisexual in your organisation? And that seems like, a OK, yeah, we can we can live with that. OK, so how many people do you have that are transgender in your organisation? Uh, So people then start because they haven't thought beyond perhaps the race and gender boxes. Now, what I would say is 
it's important to recognize we're not on a diversity top trumps here. You know, it's not like one one, <laughs> one characteristic yeah. is not more important, more equal than another, as it were. But but it is saying for organizations, if you are only focusing on race and on gender, for instance, then who still doesn't have a seat at the table? And how can you leverage, going back to the original point, the privileges you are afforded in life to find ways to bring them into the business, to include them, create safe spaces where they're valued and understood in your business and leverage the benefits that come from having them within your organization. Because I tell you what, if your organization is not diverse, certainly your stakeholder network and your potential customer base will be. And they are looking more and more and more to partner with organizations, suppliers, providers, et cetera, who represent, proactively represent diversity, equity, and inclusion. They are the companies of the future that people want to work with. Well, this then requires people who have privilege to be willing to give up some of their control and some of their privilege in order to invite others to the table. Uh, My pal Rod Jefferson describes diversity as having a seat at the table and inclusion (laughs) as being able to order it from the menu. That's right. Um, And equity being able to get to the table, right? Right. Okay. So I, I think what we're hearing here is that you have to be willing to give something up to get something better. And that requires a, a shift in mindset because I think most people operate playing a finite game, which mm. is um, they play to win or not to lose. And there's a beginning and an end to the game. And the objective is to take a bigger piece of a shrinking pie. But what you're describing here, Jackie, is um, a shift to an infinite mindset, which is how do we keep the game going and how do we make the pie bigger so everyone benefits? And that's a big shift. And it doesn't necessarily mean giving up a big piece of yourself, right? And it perhaps means that in the short term, by looking from a less fixed mindset, and it does take an inner vulnerability, actually, because there'll be people listening that going, well, you know, I don't I don't really see the point of that. And I hope that this interview has helped them see a bit more of the point of it. But, you know, it's truly courageous when you can go inside and say, yeah, okay, I hadn't looked at it that way before. Now I recognize whether I liked it or didn't like it, you know, I'm, I want to uh, make space for other people. That doesn't necessarily have to be at the expense of your own power, if you like, your own position. It simply can be that it will complement you. And think about, God, how much better could you be as an individual by having those different perspectives right next to you? And well, I mean, I could go on. Uh, we're sadly out of time, I think, Marcus. But, you know, I, I could go on and um, I'd be really, really happy to speak to either you again or indeed anybody listening that wants some more sort of insight in this, if I can help. How, how can people get hold of you? Yeah, I mean, um, having a name like Jackie Handy is quite helpful, really. If you just look on Google, you'll find me. I'm uh, pretty much uh, completely on the first page. But I'm also quite quite visible on LinkedIn, so that's a good place to look as well. So just find me, Jackie Handy. You'll see me as um, FPSA, which is Fellow of the Professional Speaking Association, and FREC, which is the Fellow of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation as well. So yeah, LinkedIn or Google me. Jackie, thank you so much. This has been incredibly enlightening. Thank you, Marcus. Appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Cappy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please like, comment, share and subscribe and give the Inquisitor podcast a review on Apple or Google. And if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.